It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. Okay, let's go back 100 years. That's when the nation was facing a major killer, tuberculosis. TB is highly infectious. It's spread through the air and can destroy the lungs. Here in Chicago, TB was taking more than 3,000 lives a year. And so the city did something about it. In 1915, Chicago found infected residents and plucked them from their lives, from their homes and their families. And they sent them away to protect the patients and the public. The destination? A 160-acre mini-city, then on the rural edge of town. It was called the Municipal Tuberculosis Sanitarium. And for more than half a century, it's where the city's TB patients were sent until they got better or they died. The sanitarium closed in 1974, but some of the buildings are still there. They're part of Peterson Park on the northwest side. And that's where questioner Lori Nader was visiting with a friend one day when they got lucky. They ran into the head of the park and got a tour. And she showed us all these archives, took us to the morgue, told us about the stories about the underground, how it's all connected. This visit only filled Lori with more questions about the place, especially. What was it like to live here? Yeah, what was it like? I mean, for the quarter million patients who were treated there. That's right, a quarter million people were quarantined in the sanitarium, often for years, as late as 1974, when it finally closed. I'm WBEZ reporter Monica Eng, and to answer Lori's question, I tracked down members of a fading generation. They're Chicagoans who survived TB and actually lived at the Municipal Tuberculosis Sanitarium in its final decades. The place literally saved their lives and the lives of others who could have been infected. But it left them with indelible memories, some horrible and some joyful. So what was it like to live at the TB Sanitarium? Well, Lil Campbell grew up on the south side and was sent to the sanitarium when she was 12. To her, it looked alien. I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, but it was huge, huge. Others described it as a city within a city, full of red brick hospitals, dispensaries, labs, a powerhouse, cottages, even a church, school, auditorium, and yes, a morgue. And if you got sent there, it was usually because you were contagious, which meant your first stop was the contagious ward, a place that terrified 12-year-old Lil. I felt as if I was being locked up. So you're in a room with at least 20, 30 women. You can't sleep. You're not used to the constant coughing. And, you know, to wake up and someone says, you know, so-and-so died last night. Today, we treat TB with antibiotics, but even during the 1960s, they used treatments that seem weird and harsh today, like fresh air treatments to heal the lungs. These left Gloria Traub freezing in bed next to windows that were left open even in the middle of a Chicago winter. The windows were always open 24 hours. That winter, that fall, put another blanket on you, they opened the windows and you laid in bed. And it was every day, and it was cold. And while resting in that bed, there was no movement allowed, not even for reading. They wanted you perfectly still. Some of these ideas were the, the craziest ideas now when we think about it, like that would disturb your TB germs. Here's another thing former sanitarium patients can't forget. 
the constant tests to see if you were contagious. Like the sputum test, where they stuck a tube down your throat to collect mucus and spit from your lungs. Here's Lil Campbell again. To this day, I will not forget that, that taste. It was like a, a hot water bottle tube. And, and they would give you ice water so that the sputum could come up and they could take samples. So it'd be almost like you're throwing up or you're gagging. And they pulled the tube out right away. To me, that was horrible. Horrible. Gloria Traub recalls yet another test, something called stomach washing, that she endured every month for nearly two years. You got up at 7 a.m. in the morning and you went down to the lab and a, a, a technician came and gave you a little tiny bit of oil and a long three-and-a-half-foot rubber hose. And then he'd say, now, now breathe, breathe deep, breathe deep. And he'd start sticking the tube down your nose. And when it got to your stomach, he was starting to take out the stomach solution that they wanted to test. Then he'd say, okay. And then he'd just rip the whole damn thing right out of your... It, it was medieval. And of course, TB had killed millions across the world. Something you couldn't forget, especially in the contagious ward. I think maybe six times somebody had a frank hemorrhage. They just suddenly started spurting bright red blood out all over the place from their their mouth. Of course, we all made a lot of noise. Nurse, nurse. And they take the person, put them in a wheelchair, take them out. And more often than not, we never saw those people again. Another thing that sticks in the minds of TB sanitarium survivors is a long list of rules they had to live by. Some of them were based on who was and who wasn't contagious. If you were very contagious, they gave you a red card. If you were not too bad, they gave you a green card. If you could be around other people, they gave you a blue card. And you had to carry this card with you everywhere you went. If you had that blue or green card, you could leave the contagious ward and live in campus cottages. But Gloria Traub says there were still a lot of rules, and they didn't make a lot of sense. We were never, ever allowed to go anywhere with men patients. There was one way around this. It was called Friday Movie Night, the highlight of the week for the non-contagious. Men and women got to sit in the same auditorium, just in separate sections. But once the lights were out, she says it was anything goes. Five minutes after the movie started, the most horrible running of feet and noise and people running around meeting up their friends. Well, did you uh, tell Bill that I've decided to do the show with him? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then say? five minutes before say? the movie was over, they would flicker the projector. And it, again, everybody went back to their seats. <laughs> Another rule, no popcorn or chips. Because it might scratch our throats so and we might start bleeding. These food restrictions led to smuggling. Oh, I wanted a hamburger so bad. But they searched the men. And the women, they looked in your purse and they kind of looked in your pocket. So my father always stuck them down in his boot. But pretty soon the guards knew what he did. And he must have lost 25 hamburgers. But food wasn't all the patients smuggled. Here's Cesar Oñate, who was there in 1972. And this one guy, I remember he was huge, big, muscly black guy. Once it got dark, he would jump the fence and jump back. He used to come back with pints and half pints of vodka because vodka didn't stay in your in your breath. It wasn't that strong. You know, so the staff won't smell it. Once patients got out of the contagious ward, they could go to sanitarium school, get job training, and even enjoy some recreation beyond liquor. 
Here's Virginia Mend. I used to play croquet a lot. And then inside, Scrabble. Some of the times we got a record player in there and I learned the cha-cha. <laughs> I made a point of dancing because I thought maybe I'll find out if I'm really sick. If I can dance, I must not be bad. Still, there were limits to the fun, especially for some patients. Will Campbell remembers a run-in with a cafeteria staffer. She was in charge of the dietary staff. It was a bunch of black kids. We stayed together, and she didn't like us. So she would deliberately make us stand and wait. So we got to the point where when we come in, we would go over to the jukebox, and you could play the music for free, and we would deliberately put on Rock and Robin just to kind of irk her a little bit because we knew she didn't like black music. So finally one day, she got so pissed, she unplugged the jukebox. By this time, we're getting a little rebellious, and, you know, we could kind of feel our oats, as the older people say. So we plugged it back up. And she couldn't do a thing about it. You know, that was our triumph that day. Folks remember these little triumphs amid sanitarium states that could last for years. Relapses were common, so even people who felt fine had to stay on for monitoring. But eventually, some could make trips home. Gloria Traub remembers visiting her husband and eight kids. You were allowed a pass to come home for 24 hours. And I was home, and I got pregnant. So they said, well, okay, you're going to have to stay here and have your baby. I said, oh, no, sir, I I can't do that. My children do not know who their mother is. They think one of the grandmothers, they call their mother. I said, I have to go home. In the end, these survivors did go home. With rest, fresh air, antibiotics, and sometimes surgery, they beat TB. But many, like Lil, hold on to mixed feelings. It was a good thing because it protected the population. And in retrospect, it saved my life. But the things that I went through... I wish they did it differently. But does the end justify the means? In this case, yes. So there you have it. A glimpse into the world of a quarter million Chicagoans who passed through the gates of Chicago's municipal TB sanitarium. And here's one last thing they all experienced. No medical bill. Literally, zero dollars for years of treatment, housing, and food. This last point really moved our questioner, Lori. And here's why. A hundred years ago, Chicagoans came together and voted. They voted to pay for all of this care through city taxes and to cover everyone. It was a miracle, is how I look at it. And we don't have that anymore. If you're sick, poor, minority, you're not treated like human beings. Um, It should not be the end of your life if you're sick and poor. And we, we had it right. I don't know why we don't have it right anymore. Reporting came from me, Monica Eng. Special thanks to Gloria Traub, Cesar Onyate, Lil Campbell, Virginia Mend, Alan Lake, Mindy Schwartz, Francis Archer, and Wayne Schimpf. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Y'all heard the story Whipping that old TV Punching and swinging Whipping that old TV 
I'm here to tell you, TV's whipping me. Next time on Curious City, Chicago's deep dish pizza is popular for tourists. Locals order thin crust pizza way more often than deep dish. And within the world of thin crust... There's something called tavern-style pizza. That's square-cut pizza. It was designed for neighborhood bars. Just the culture of tavern and neighbor drinking. You could eat it with your hands. Chicago's ongoing contributions to pizza. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.